Well, hey, welcome to Auckland EV. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. So much of life is not shaped by how well we start things, but how well we finish them. It's relatively easy to start a, a marriage. Two people make a promise, but then the really hard stuff begins, keeping that promise. It's the same thing with, with a job, a degree, a family. Although sometimes all these areas can be incredibly difficult to start, but continuing to the end, that's an even harder task again. Well, as we think about life, we often have flash in the pan moments, you know, firecrackers of ideas that go off with a bang, then fade into the night. It can kind of be like that in our relationship with God as well. We might have had a moment, a time in our life where we explored Christianity and it went off with a flame. But then the trick is, how long do we keep it going? How long will that flame go? How long before the glimpse of who Jesus is fades out? Maybe for you, you're someone who's just come along to Jesus now and you found out who he is and there's been a flash and you're excited. Will you continue? Or maybe for you, it feels like your Christian life is fading out right now. Judges 6 to 8 shows us not only how to start life that lasts forever, but the key to hold on to it, to thrive until the end. In Judges 6 verse 1, we hear again that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, the recurring theme of Judges reminds us that our natural stance towards God is, is one of rebellion. But this time, God's punishment is, is even more severe. He hands them over to the Midianites, the Amalekites and the Philistines in the east. They're all real people in real lands of the ancient Near East. And in verse 2, we hear that Israel are forced to hide in mountain clefts, caves and dens. The Midianites come and take their crops and animals. Israel are impoverished at this point. Now, it's hard enough at the moment when we're locked up in our houses that we can't get out much. But imagine having to go and live in the Waitakere's, hiding in caves, no shops to go to, and add to that the fear of the enemy lurking, trying to kill us. And at the end of this harsh rule, it was nowhere in sight. Finally, Israel cry out to the Lord, but this time they get rebuked by a prophet. Even though God had previously saved them, they hadn't followed him. Then we get introduced to God's deliverer, Gideon. Although we'll see it's actually God who delivers Israel time and time again. As we meet Gideon, we see that he's a pretty reluctant savior. He demands these multiple reassurances from God. So God tells him in verse 14, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? Gideon replies, I can't save Israel. I'm the lowest person in the weakest clan. And you can kind of understand him, can't he? It'd be like God saying to us, I want you to go and take out America, New Zealand. And I want you to lead it. It's kind of like, are you crazy? Have you seen America's defense force? Have you seen ours? Now, although God does promise he will be with Gideon, but for Gideon, God's word wasn't enough. He needs a sign. Look at verse 17. If I've found favor in your sight, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. So Gideon prepares a sacrifice. And at this moment, God's angel touches this rock with a sacrifice on it and it bursts into flames. The angel disappears and then Gideon's like, wow. And it's kind of the first reassurance for him. He freaks out, understandably. But that reassurance from God helps him. He's scared, which is the right response when you meet with God. But then God commands him to move forward and do what he's called to do, which is to tear down the Baal altar and the Asherah pole that his family had set up. And all this happens at Ophrah at the very beginning. Then we have reassurance number two. And here 
Gideon has some capabilities, right? He's actually able to gather people, the Abyssalites, but he feels unsure if he'll be able to save Israel from this kind of imposing army. So he asks for reassurance and he does what we always want to do when we, we want to know, does God want me to do this? He gets a lamb's fleece. Now here's Sheepy. I've brought him along because he reminds us of the lamb's fleece. And what he does is he says to God, I'll get Sheepy and I'll leave him outside. And I put him on the floor and in the morning, I want Sheepy, the lamb's fleece, to be wet with dew, but I want the ground to be dry. And you know what? It happens, but it's not quite enough for Gideon. He's like, don't get angry, God. Please just once more, just to make sure that wasn't a fluke. This time I want sheepy dry, the fleece dry and the ground wet. And it happens. Now, God's not telling us getting a sheep like this is the way to make decisions or to get his guidance. Just because someone does something in the Bible doesn't mean we necessarily do what they did. We keep talking about the difference between descriptive, describing what happened, and prescriptive, prescribing what we ought to do. Gideon had already been told what to do. He had the promise of God to go with him. He just needed to obey. He didn't need the sheep, right? But it's not that easy sometimes, is it? Have you ever been in a situation where you know what you have to do? God's been clear of it in his word, but it's just hard. You're not sure you could trust him. You know, if you really want me to do this, God, can, can you give me a sign? Can you, you know, make an asteroid fall at my feet and not take me out with it or something like that? Uh, I was at a Christian conference a number of years ago and a girl kept going around asking all the speakers the same question. Is it okay if I date a non-Christian? Is it okay if I, I look to marry someone who's, who's not trusting in Jesus? Every speaker said no. And it was clear in the Bible that it's not what God wants. He wants Christians to marry someone who is a Christian. But her desire was to seek someone to va validate um, what she already thought. Gideon, he didn't need any guidance here. God had told him to go save Israel. He should have just obeyed. He should have done what Jesus did. Do you remember when, when Satan was tempting him in Matthew 4? Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written his angels. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. Jesus didn't need to test God. He took him at his word. He trusted the word of God and obeyed. We don't need to test God. He is trustworthy. His past actions have shown it. The cross proved it. He keeps his word no matter what the cost. So when we're tempted to ask God for a sign that, 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 that we can trust him, you know, when what you're saying is that God's word is not enough. Just because a door opens or a door shuts doesn't mean it's a sign from God. Or if that thing that I asked for happens doesn't necessarily mean that I can, I can move forward. Or it certainly doesn't mean I can disobey the word of God. God has spoken in his word and his word is trustworthy. If, if we keep going on asking for a sign, we're diminishing the value of God's word. We're saying he needed to say more. Two times in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 12, 39 and 6 verse 4, Jesus says the same thing. An evil and adulterous generation demand a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, except his resurrection from the dead. Well, eventually Gideon goes against the Midianites in chapter seven and Gideon gathers together 32,000 men ready to go. That's like gathering every person from St. Luke's, Balmoral, Mount Albert, Sandrium and Mount Eden all together and saying, let's go out and fight. This is some serious war. 
But God wants to make one point absolutely clear. He is the one who saves. There's going to be no way anyone else can think that they did it. So look what he does in chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag I did it myself. And so God has two rounds of culling. First, 22,000 of them are scared, so they get to go home. It's pretty nice for them. Um, Then only those who drink by taking their hand to their mouths stay. You know how many that was? 300. 300. That's all that's left. They had 32,000 down to 300. That's like everyone who comes to our morning service gathered together and it's only us versus this massive other nation. And so Gideon at this moment, he's getting freaked out again. And that's when he needs reassurance number three. Look at chapter 7, verse 10. God says, if you're afraid to go to the camp, go with Pura, your servant. Listen to what they say and then you'll be strengthened to go to the camp. He goes to the camp and he hears a dream of the enemy and how it's interpreted. And listen to this, how amazingly generous God is. He didn't need to do it. Verse 14, the friend, and again, this is, this is the, the non-Israelite friend, says, This dream is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. Now that is a wow moment, right? One of those times you just stand back and go, wow, God, you are good. He didn't need to do that, but he did. He gave that reassurance. God didn't have to give that reassurance. He doesn't have to do that sort of thing today. In fact, because of our rebellion against God, he shouldn't. He's given us his word. He's spoken. But but out of his love, he sometimes does give us amazing comfort, sometimes unexpected grace. Has it ever happened to you uh, when God has done something that you haven't expected and it shows his trustworthiness? Uh, When Sarah and I were planning to move to New Zealand, we were putting together a budget and we were $5,000 short for how we could get here to do some of the stuff that we needed to do. Totally out of the blue, someone sent us a check in the mail, you know, when you could have those at those times, for $5,000. Now, this person, they didn't know the amount. They weren't even a Christian. They didn't know that we needed funds to do it. They just went, here's $5,000. And it was exactly the amount we needed. Now, was that a coincidence? It could be just a coincidence. But in the end, we know God is sovereign over all circumstances. We have a God who is mighty and powerful, who says he'll provide us with what we need. He never promised that he'd give us that $5,000. And it wasn't God's guidance that we should come to New Zealand. No, no, not at all. It was just his provision. God provided exactly what we needed at that point. Now, it's important not to confuse the two, not to confuse God's provision with his guidance. Here, God gave Gideon not guidance. His word had already given that loud and clear, but he gave him a reassurance of his provision. Gideon was strengthened that God would do what he said he would do. There's this great reassurance here for us as well that God will do what he says he'll do. Right? The Old Testament is a catalogue of God doing exactly that. So when you feel unsure, when you, when you doubt, will God follow through on his word? Will God do as he says he will? You just need to look to the Old Testament. And the right response is Gideon's response. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. Gideon took God at his word, what he originally said, and he obeyed. See, when you realize just how awesome and powerful and merciful the God of the universe is, well, why wouldn't you worship him? How could you not worship him? So Gideon divides up 
uh, the 300 men into three groups of 100 each. He gives each man a jar, and not a clear jar that we type of thing, but a jar that would have been made out of pottery and a torch, like a flame and a trumpet. Now, I, I'm not a fan of trumpets at the best of times. They're okay. They've got their certain places. What's a trumpet going to do in this illustration and a jar and a torch? Well, what happens is they put the torch under the jar so it's, it's hidden and the people around can't see it. It kind of hides its light. And they have a trumpet ready. Who knows what for? Then Gideon says when he gives the signal, blow your trumpets, smash the jar, hold your torch and your sword. And verse 22 shows us what happens. When Gideon's men blew their th- 300 trumpets. The Lord set the swords of each man in the army against each other and they fled. The Midianites kill one another. They get freaked out. They're in, they've got all these lights and horns and trumpets surrounding them. They think it's huge and so they kill one another. What's clear here is that God is the one who wins the battle. God is the one who wins the battle. Do you know how many Midianites there were? Chapter 8 verse 10 tells us 135,000. Versus 300 men without fighter jets, rocket launchers, armored tanks, grenades, no weapons of mass destruction, just a sword, a jar and a torch. And they take on 135,000. Now, if you were a military strategist at this point, you'd think Israel had lost their marbles doing this. But here's the point. God is good. He is faithful to his word. He is the one who saves. Salvation comes from him. Now, you see what happens here. You can't miss who the real saviour is, can you? That's what God is showing. He is the one who saves. God saves. It's kind of like when you come face to face with Jesus. You see what happens with his life, how perfect he is, how he does what we couldn't do, how he treats God rightly. And you see his death in our place, taking the wrath of God on himself, something none of us would want to endure. And then you see his resurrection from the dead, something that I've not seen anywhere else, that he rose never to die again. When you come face to face, with Jesus, you recognize who he really is, who the real savior is. But here in the story of Judges is where it gets even more interesting. Given the pattern we've seen before, you'd expect the next sentence in Judges to say, there was peace in the land while Gideon ruled. That's not what we read. Gideon isn't satisfied with this massive win. God promised he'd hand over Midian and he's done that. He's he's killed the princes of Midian, but Gideon wants blood. He wants more blood, like a shark who's had a wounded seal come near. Gideon pursues the kings of Midian who fleed and he really pursues. It's like he's become this frenzied killer. He doesn't seem to care that his troops are exhausted. And as you read through chapter 7 and then chapter 8, you see he just keeps going on and on and on. There's no food and there's nothing given to them, but he doesn't care. The one who was previously so apprehensive has let it go to his head. He wants the kings of Midian badly. He wants revenge. 8 verse 19 says, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you would let them live, I would not kill you. He's after vengeance and he thinks he can bring it on his own and that's what he does. Now it's interesting to notice that in this entire section in chapter 8, in this frenzied chase of these Midianite kings, there's not one mention of God being with him. God has vanished from the page of chapter 8. Gideon here is not on a mission from God, but he's on a personal revenge mission because their kings killing Gideon's brothers, that means he is going to get revenge and revenge is what he gets. He does it on his own, off his own bat. He finds them and he kills them. 
Now, as the Israelites, God's people look at Gideon's success, they're wowed. They go, he should be our king. They've seen his amazing military efforts and the way he's done this. And the very thing God didn't want to happen, happens. Look at verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. (laughs) What happens next is exactly what God did not want to happen. Israel thinks Gideon has saved them. But even though they get the facts incredibly wrong about who saved them, there's something Israel do get right at this point. And that's this. The one who saves should be the one who rules. Let me say it again, because this is the key point. The one who saves should be the one who rules. God saved them. So God should be their king. He's he's brought them into this new peace. He should be the one to lead them. The saviour should be the Lord. Now, Gideon at this moment rightly rejects their request. No, no, God is our ruler. (laughs) But the problem of Israel drifting from God is already too strong. Like us, we see a flash in the pan at the start and then we drift off later on. So Israel see the salvation from God, but don't even see it as from God. They wrongly attribute it to Gideon. The flash goes, the people will reject God and off they go to the side. Gideon at this point decides to make an ephod. Now, what exactly an ephod was is a little hard to know. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's usually a breastplate worn by the high priests as they, as they went in and offered sacrifices for God. And as they would work out what God would want them to do, it was this, this symbol that they had for the Old Testament high priests. Seems really unusual for it to be placed in a town, as it says in 827, not where, where they are with the tabernacle, where God's people were. And what's Gideon doing with this? Why is he creating this thing? No matter what it is, Gideon makes it and he makes it without any direction from God at all. And then what happens is Israel worship this ephod and they worship Gideon who leads them and want to make him their king. Look at verse 27. Gideon made an ephod uh, from all this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel prostituted themselves with it there and became a snare to Gideon and his household. Israel forsakes God, even while Gideon, the judge, is living. That hadn't happened before. Now the judge is still living and they forsake God while he's alive. And do you notice where it happens? It happens in Ophrah. Now, we've seen this place before. The writer of Judges is trying to show us something. At the very beginning of of chapter 6, we see in Ophrah there was a family idol in Gideon's household and and God tells Gideon to tear it down as his first act of of judging Israel. Tear down this family idol to to other false gods. And and that was there in Ophrah. And then now at the end of 827, an idol has been made by Gideon and rather than just his family worshipping it, all of Israel worships it. At the beginning was just Gideon's family. Now all of Israel have bowed down to this false god. Ironically, Gideon at the heights of his power leads Israel away from God. Israel here, that is getting worse and worse. I hope you can see the judges is not just a cycle that goes round and round with the same pattern, but it's a downward spiral. Israel are going down the gurgler. Now they're abandoning God, even while the judge is still alive. The writer of Judges, though, tells us the reason for this downward spiral. Look at chapter 8, verse 34. The Israelites 
did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the power of the enemies around them. They didn't remember the Lord who saved them. Israel had wanted Gideon to rule over them because they thought Gideon saved them. They were all about Gideon and not God. And there's a sense where they they got a little part of that right. The Savior should be the Lord. The one who saves is the one who should be king. But they did not remember the Lord. They did not remember who really saved them. They enjoyed God's salvation, but they didn't want to acknowledge him, nor do they want his lordship. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever known anyone in that situation where you want to enjoy salvation from God, forgiveness for turning your back on him or rescue from some horrific situation, crying out to God, please save me. And people see God's salvation, but then they forget about him. They think they've achieved it. You don't want uh, the one who saves you to be the one who rules you. We often want to separate the Savior from the Lord. I call it insurance policy Christianity. It's where we want the payout without the premium. We want the the salvation without submitting uh, to to God or to Jesus as Lord. The book of Judges is showing us that we can't divide God's salvation from his lordship, his rule. Now Gideon in 8.23 recognizes that. Look what it says. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But then the very next verse, he leads them away from God and they follow him away from God. Well, as we look to the greatest saviour ever in Jesus, God himself who stepped onto the face of the earth to die in our place and rise again and offer forgiveness from our sin, it's important to notice how the Bible introduces Jesus. Have a look at this, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Jesus is introduced to us as he walks onto the world stage as the saviour and the Lord. Jesus, his name means saviour. And it also tells us he is Christ, which means King and Lord. Jesus is introduced as the saviour and the Lord. You cannot split him in half. The one who saves is the one who rules. And the one who rules is the one who saves. See, if you're happy to hang your life on the fact that Jesus' death was sufficient to save you from your sin, then we need to live our lives by the fact that he also is the king. Israel here, they wanted saving, but without submitting. How about you? Who is Jesus to you? Do you have a view of him that In that last moment, you'll cry out like Israel do to God, save me and and hope he will. Do you trust him for your eternity, but you don't really trust him in this life? This kind of insurance policy savior where Jesus has nothing to do with me now until my moment of need, then I cash in on the policy. It doesn't end well. It means that we fizz out. We make dumb choices and walk away from God like Israel did. We might see his saving work, but then forget about it. And just go like that match at the beginning of today's talk. We need to recognize he is the Lord. He is God. Why would I trust Jesus to save me from hell, but not trust him in how I live my life? Not place my life in his hands now if he is God, the son who's died for me. But we're not consistent, are we? We don't always do that. We slip and put all sorts of other idols in the way. Let me ask you today. Is Jesus your Lord? Have you handed 
over your rights and your desires to Jesus? Have you trusted his word is faithful, that he will come back again to judge the living and the dead, that he has offered forgiveness, that his way is right? Have you trusted him as the ruler of your life? And that's what God calls us to do. He commands us to turn to Jesus, to submit to his son. If Jesus is who history overwhelmingly suggests he is, then he is God. He's the one who made you, who allows every beat of your heart. He is the king. The story of Gideon pushes us to ask, is Jesus your savior and is Jesus your king? Is Jesus in the driver's seat of your life? Or are you playing a game with Jesus, attributing the good things that God has given you to someone else, to to your good thinking or your good actions? Are you worshipping the created things rather than the creator? The temptation is so strong. I find it so strong. Maybe for you, you've accepted that Jesus does save. But like Israel, you've refused to make him the ruler of your life. When I was a kid, I used to play this game called Simon Says. You've probably heard of it. Simple game. Uh, when a person says, Simon says, you have to do it. And if they don't say, Simon says, you don't do it, right? It's pretty simple. <laughs> What's weird is that in the church, the, the game Jesus says is a totally different game. When Jesus says something, we sometimes kind of focus on memorizing what he says. Uh, sometimes we make a little cross stitch and put it up on the wall. Jesus said it. Uh, we get into groups to discuss what Jesus said, uh, but it doesn't change our lives. I mean, imagine for a moment, I told my son, Nathaniel, our oldest, to go clean his room. Two hours later, he comes back to me and says, Dad, guess what? I memorized what you said. You said, go clean your room. I can remember it. Like, and guess what, Dad? I learned it in Greek as well. Right? My friends are going to come over a little bit later. We're going to do a Discord server. We're going to have a little study on what it looks like to clean my room. Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> Sometimes that's exactly what we can do with God's word. We memorize it, which is good, but it just stays there. And and we think about it and we talk about it, but we never let God's word be the ruler of our life. God be the ruler of our life. It doesn't change the way we live. If we're serious about the Savior, we need to be serious about his rule. Because Jesus is no fluffy Santa Claus. He's no fairy godmother on, on the clouds. He made me in you. He owns me in you. And he loves me in you. So let me ask you today, where do you still resist the kingship of Jesus? The biggest reason I think I resist Jesus' kingship is because I think I can serve multiple gods. Not logically, I don't go, yes, I'm serving multiple gods. I think I can love Jesus and love these other things the same. I think I can love Jesus and make myself king as well. I push too many things to first priority in my life. In reality, that's asking Jesus to share his throne. I struggle with submitting to Jesus and to the God of security and wealth and opportunity. I see what others have and I'm like, oh, that'd be great. And my life would be so much better if I I just had that and I spend my time researching or looking or, or, or seeing how I can make that happen. Who or what else have you allowed to sit on the throne of the only Savior and King? Is it yourself? Is it relationships? Is it the God of good times or the God of career? The God of high marks, that's what's, what's got to be the most important. The God of comfort, the God of achievement, the God of family. I mean, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But unless Jesus is valued above all, 
then he isn't valued at all. I mean, imagine a husband or a wife that's 85% committed to their spouse. There's no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus. Recognizing Jesus as the Savior is the way to start life that lasts forever. But if we don't recognize He's the Lord, our lives will be a flash in the pan. We won't enjoy His salvation because we won't endure and we'll put ourselves at the center and we'll walk away from what He has done for us. Now, the key to enjoying the benefits of the Savior is recognizing He is the Lord, remaining in Him, in the truth that He has already saved us. Therefore, we're freed, freed from placing anything or anyone else as ruler of our lives, free from being enslaved to ourselves as ruler of our lives and placing Jesus at the center as the Savior and the King. Today, as we come and see the story of Gideon and Judges and Israel, we get a fantastic reminder that Jesus is the saviour we need and he is the king over all. The question is, will you place him as your king? Why don't we pray that God would help us to put Jesus as the king of our lives so we might endure. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful today that you have shown us your salvation in Jesus. That Jesus has come and and done what we couldn't do. That he's died and risen again and offered us life and forgiveness. We confess that it's so easy to be amazed at what Jesus did, but then forget that he is our king. To live our lives our own way. Please show us where we've done that. Show us today as as we think through and discuss what areas of our lives Jesus is not central in. Would you... Help us to push those things to their right place under him. Help us to rely on his word, to trust you. And as we think through what your word says, Lord, help us not to doubt. Help us not to ask for signs and and need more reassurance, but to come to your word where you speak clearly that Jesus is coming back again, that he will judge the living and the dead that he's paid the price for our sin, and that as we face you on that last day, we can stand forgiven if we place our lives in his hands. Today, Lord, we ask you'd help us to take you at your word and to place Jesus as not only our saviour, but as our king. We pray this in his great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.